So at this time, we'll have our first message by Mr. Art Williams. Had a rough, rough start for this day. I had a very learning experience that <clears throat> having a mustache can be hazardous to your nose. <laughs> and then I found out putting your left leg in your right pant leg isn't such a good idea. <laughs> Hopefully, my tongue will find its correct ways around the mouth. <clears throat> the title is and turned not aside from anything God commanded. The scripture that's being referenced is somewhat amazing, but somewhat shocking for its simplicity and for what it says. And one's first reaction may be, this can't be so. It must be an error. The scripture is about David. No, no, not David Hope. David, the man who killed Goliath. <clears throat> And 1 Kings 15.4 leads into it. Nevertheless, for David's sake, did the Lord, his God, give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem because, and this is the key scripture that I'm focusing on, because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. <clears throat> it sounds straightforward and easy to understand until we take a closer look at David's life. For David's life was anything but clinically sterile. And if we dig into the specific events surrounding the narrative on David's life and analyze what happened and why, and then try to come to an understanding of how the blessing of 15.4 is justified by 15.5, we come away with many questions, maybe shaking our heads and saying, it can't be. I don't get it. Something must be wrong here. Perhaps making it all the more difficult is 1 Samuel 13.14. Brian, I didn't reference that to you. You don't have to put it up. Uh, it says that David was a man after God's own heart. And that phrase doesn't mean chasing after. The word after is not a verb. That whole phrase is Strong's number 3824, meaning heart, soul, understanding, mind, the inner man, and will. So the statement after God's own heart says he has the character values inside of him that God himself has and makes understanding the scripture in David's life a little bit more difficult. I suspect an accurate comprehension may be, our accurate comprehension may be limited by the information supplied by the narrative. And because what we're really seeking after is the mind of God on specific individual matters in David's life, resulting in the summary statement of 1 Kings 15.5. My purpose in reviewing these details and the characteristics of, of God and man is to help us see the full magnitude of his justice encompassed with love. As it said in one of the songs that we did here at the beginning, 
how great is our God. And I think that's what this message basically shows. I'm not going to turn to all these scriptures, but a brief, because most of you all know David's life pretty well. The first incident I want to reference is David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Then Uriah the Hittite, 2 Samuel 11. You can go, expand that from 6 to 24. And then in 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 29, we see the incident of Amnon and Tamar and the sexual assault there, where David took no punitive action. And there's a scripture that says, if you know of a sin or see a sin, and you take no action to stop it or do something about it, then you are condoning it. That's a real tough situation to be in, though, when they're part of your family. Then you have Absalom's rebellion in 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 23. Then you have Shimei, who's, who curses David, in 2 Samuel 16, 5 through 8. Then there's Absalom's death in 2 Samuel 18, 9 through 14. And David's reaction to Absalom's death. And I want to turn there, 2 Samuel 18, 32, 33. 2 Samuel 18, 32, 33. And the king said to Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies of my lord, the king, and all that rise up against thee to do hurt thee, be as that young man is. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, Oh, my son, my son, my son Absalom, would God I have died for thee, oh, my son Absalom, my son. Then there's a problem with that, which Joab brings to David's attention. And we can read about that in chapter 19, 1 through 7, chapter 19. And it was told to Joab, behold, the king weeps and mourns for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people, for the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people got them by stealth that day into the city as people were being ashamed, they steal away and they flee in battle. But when the king covered his face and the king would cry with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, my son Absalom. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have shamed this day the faces of all your servants that would have saved thy life, that would have the lives of thy sons and thy daughters and the lives of thy wives and the lives of your concubines. So David had all these people that fought on his behalf, that went out to save his kingdom and to save his life. And he's mourning for the person that was seeking his life. That's, that's a tough situation to be in when it's your own son, isn't it? That's tough. But it's natural to do what David did. But at the same time, he was kind of dishing those that supported him. And then David numbers Israel. And I learned something here 
It's in 2 Samuel 24, 1. <clears throat> Something that I never, ever realized before. 2 Samuel 24, 1. The very first phrase. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Hold it. Stop right there. Stop right there. The Lord's already angry with Israel before he numbered the people. Okay? Because if we go on down he through this, uh, we will find out that it's all the way down, and I didn't put it down there for you, Brian. I think it's in, uh, I don't know, seven or eight verses later, it says that the Lord was not happy or pleased with what was, was done that day, with the numbering. But the Lord was actually already angry with Israel, and I, don't, I never realized that. I'm going to look, pull it up here in, in my Bible. Bear with me while I, while I get there. And again, the anger of the Lord, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them to say, "Go and number Israel and Judah." And then we can see his advisors told him not to do it. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And this displeased the Lord. Now, if we go over to 1 Chronicles 21, 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, 1. We'll find out something else here. 21, 1 says, And Satan stood up against Israel and enticed David to number Israel. Okay? So we got the Lord doing it and we got Satan doing it. Conclusion, the Lord allowed Satan to do it. But it's interesting, in my mind, that the Lord was already angry with Israel. And again, it, I couldn't exactly put my finger on exactly why he was already angry with Israel. And then, continuing with David's life, we get to 1 Kings 2, 1 through 9. 1 Kings 2, 1 through 9. And what we find in here is David's charge to Solomon. You know, man, you got to go out and get these guys and even the score. I'm down to die now, and these guys are out there. We got to move up the score. I mean, that's the way it comes across. Because what he says here. Starting in verse 1, Now the days of David drew near that he should die. He charged Solomon, saying to his son, and he, dropping down to verse 5, Moreover, thou knowest also what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, and what he did to the two captains of the host of Israel, Abner and the son of Ner, and unto Amasa the son of Jether, whom he slew and shed the blood of war in peace, and put the blood of war on his belt, and that was about his loins and him in his shoes that were on his feet. 
Do therefore according to thy wisdom and not let his gray head go down to hell in peace. And Shemai, Shemai comes up next and basically the same commission is, is given Solomon on Shemai. And I elected not to go through that story for time. But basically, you know, I think you probably know the story. Shemai cursed David when he was fleeing from Absalom. And after the whole matter is settled, Shemai comes back to the king, asks forgiveness. The king David says, I will not kill you with the sword. So he says to Solomon, And behold, thou hast the Shemai, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, who cursed me with a grievous curse in the day when I went to Mahan Am. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put thee to death with the sword. Now therefore, hold him not guiltless, for you are a wise man and knowest what thou ought to do unto him. But his gray head bring thou down to the hell with blood. <laughs> and Solomon was cagey about it. He, he went to the man and he said, you will live peacefully if you stay in Jerusalem. Build your house and live in Jerusalem. You go outside of Jerusalem and you will die. Three years or so went by. Two of his servants ran away from him outside of Jerusalem. He went after them. Solomon heard of it and went over and again killed him and said, your blood be upon your own head which indeed it was. He made the contract and he didn't live up to it. Harsh stuff. Harsh stuff. That's part of the narrative on David's life. So now we can go back once again and read that scripture 15.5. Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Do you have any questions about maybe how can this be? The, the difficulties in understanding the scriptures and what we can learn? There's a lot of considerations. Some of those considerations was David was king of Israel and it was a theocracy. It was, it was a different society from what we're used to and what we have. We know some of what it means to be a man after God's own heart, but perhaps we do not have the entirety of the understanding. And we certainly probably fall short of even seeing the greatness of God. For in Isaiah 55, 8, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. God is timeless and he's not time constrained, and we are constrained by our lifetime. God has no need of food and water and sleep and shelter. God doesn't need to work to supply his needs. And God's heart is pure and right. And in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says about man's heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The narrative doesn't clearly review the, uh, reveal the attitudes of all the players that were involved and how God may have tested them and what the results were of those tests. But I want to interject an application of this principle for us because so often when we think about the scripture, we apply it only to 
doing evil to others, but in fact we can, do, we can apply it to doing evil to ourselves. Quite often we think about the heart as telling us, oh, we have not sinned when we have, and oh, it's all right, God will forgive me. The result is we fail to strive with all of our heart, mind, and soul to please him. But another aspect of that is that the heart is deceitful even with our emotions. Because sometimes, even after we've been forgiven, we feel guilty, or we have a guilty conscience. It's a disconnect between our emotions and what we understand intellectually. And this can affect our confidence, our faith, and the trust that we have in God. In 1 John 3.21, it says, Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. David seemed to have quite a bit of confidence in God. And one thing that he never did is what Adam did. He didn't run and hide. And of course, we know from Jonah's example, you can run, but you can't hide. <coughs> have you ever felt guilty and don't even know why or what over? And you, and you, you rack your mind and you think, I didn't do anything. And then there's the times where you, you did something and you know, you know you're forgiven. You still feel guilty. How dangerous is that? Satan's first lie was to Eve, and the message contained in that lie was, you can't trust God. You can't believe him. You see, if we lack confidence because our heart condemns us, then we may act fearfully, just like Adam did, running and hiding in the garden. And how bad is it to be fearful and run away from God? Because fear may be and can be the precursor for unbelief. Revelation 21.8. Revelation 21.8. But the fearful and unbelieving. The fearful and unbelieving. And the, are lumped in here in the scripture. And the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death those that are fearful and unbelieving. So being fearful is being a high-risk individual. But human beings are complex. We make decisions based upon thought, facts, statistics, rumors, perceptions, emotions, biases, prejudice, those in favor, those out of favor, and we follow through those actions based upon them. And when we get into the situation where we may feel that we have done incorrectly and we want to go and hide from God, the correct action is, though, to go and talk to God. Not just ask for repentance or, or tell him you're sorry and ask for forgiveness, but talk about the situation. You see, we'll get why it's important to talk to God about the situation. We're going to get to here in, in a minute. Because these occasions are learning experiences, you see. 
It's part of growing, and it's part of developing into the person God wants us to be. For it says in Hebrews 5.8, Hebrews 5.8, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And quite often when we see the word obedience, we automatically think the law. We're talking about keeping the law, not keeping the law. We put the blinders on. You know something? You can suffer for a whole lot of reasons other than not keeping the law. In fact, Jesus suffered in the garden before he ever went through his death. He suffered in the garden praying, asking God, if, you, if it's your will, remove the cup. He was already suffering. What was he suffering for? Not breaking the law, but for going through and seeing that the plan of God would be implemented. That's what he was suffering for in agony. David suffered because of the acts of, of others. I'm sure he had a lot of emotional pain because of what Amnon did and what Absalom did. Because Absalom killed Amnon and they were brothers. Maybe not, not quite so much on Shimei and Joab, but, but we likewise can suffer because of the acts of others or we may be the perpetrator. And all these opportunities, all these are opportunities. You know, it's kind of like the cliche that says, what do you do when life gives you lemons? You make... Right. Jesus suffering in the garden, and we already kind of covered this, got ahead of myself, that had nothing to do with law keeping. But it takes, it includes taking actions that promote and foster the coming king of the kingdom of God. And he was obedient. And he learned not to keep the law, but to implement the plan of God. And we also can learn to be obedient and implement the plan of God to the degree that we understand his plan and are willing to strive to become what he wants us to be. Consider Daniel, a young man his whole life ahead of him, probably with hopes and dreams, expectations of how he wanted his life to go. Maybe he had a girlfriend. Maybe he was planning to get married. And what happens? Judah gets invaded. And he's a captive. So much for my life's plans. He had to set aside his hopes, his dreams, his plans for his future and evaluate what the future held for him. Because what was going on in the nation superseded what he wanted his life to be and where it was going to go. And there's nothing unique about that. In more recent times, such as in World War II, millions of young men on both sides changed their future plans to accommodate the times at hand. God has two wills for us, a definitive will that is defined in the instruction book, how we should go about doing things, what he wants to see, and an indefinitive will for our personal lives where he can open up a job for us or other opportunities as we go through our lives, all the variables that we have in our life. And at some time out there in the future, there will be world events that will modify plans individu that individuals have for their future. And when that happens, we must be able to change our plans for the future and not look back like Lot's wife, but embrace the future that he has placed before us at that time. Tomorrow, there will be a seminar on prophecy. 
Some of these prophecies can be scary and downright frightening. But one thing we can't afford to do when the time of that fulfillment comes is to take counsel of our false guilt or fears and run from God and turn our back on him. There are actions that we can take to avoid being surprised and overtaken. And I can do a message on that just by itself on fear. And I've talked about it before. It's, I think it's something that is so predominant in our society and so predominant inside of us as human beings. But some of the things that we can do to head that off is to know the, the framework and the timeline of end time prophecies and know some of the signposts so you know where you are. Am I five miles out? Am I 10 miles out? Am I a mile out? Don't set your heart on any one scenario. You know, right now, many of the Sunday churches say that the rapture starts at the beginning of the seven-year period. Well, if you believe that in your heart of hearts and you believe that for 40 or maybe 50 years or because you're an older person, when that doesn't happen and you find yourself and you're in the middle of this mor morass, what are you going to do? You may deny that it's the end time and say, no, it hasn't happened yet because I'm still here. You may say, oh, <clears throat> Christianity, what do they know? I've been lied to. My minister can't be a true minister. He lied to me. What else do they got wrong? And maybe you, fit, maybe you come in under the influence of the false prophet. Or you can just be emotionally over, overwhelmed and just have no idea what to do, where to go. One of the keys is knowing where you stand with him by maintaining a daily relationship with him. And that's, that's the first step in preparing. Because it says in Psalm 23, and I, I don't have this reference either, Brian, it says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Hold it. Why does he have the confidence? Because he knows in his heart God is with him. So the key is knowing God is with you. How do you do that? It's contact daily with God and seeing answered prayer in your individual life. And I'll say it again. I've said it before. One of those keys is a prayer log. I've been shirking on it lately myself, but that prayer log, I'll tell you, it is a valuable tool. If you don't have one, get one. Start one. It doesn't have to be involved down to the nitty-gritty of every word that you say. It can just be whatever on your heart. There are various levels of importance on prayers, I'm sure, in your life and my life. And some of the things we may pray more fervently about. But put those notes down there so you can go back and look at them later and find that God gives you an answer a year and a half later because it's really complex when you get into indefinitive answered prayer. If you're praying for a job and God says, and God says okay, I'll dial, dial you in over here. But there's somebody in that position right now. But he's going to be leaving for military service in two months. Okay? God's planning to put you in that position two months from now. Well, I can't wait anymore. I, I've got to have a job. I'll take this 
I'll be janitor over here. Talk to God about the detail of it. Let him guide you. You know, when I got my very first job, I, when I found out where the company was that I wanted to go see, I wanted to run right over there immediately. I mean, because I, I had prayer. I talked to the minister. He, the minister told me to go to this company. You know, how, well, how much more can you get to that? I was out driving around. I ran across the company, but they didn't have the personnel office there. Told me to go over someplace else. I was ready to run right over there. Then I thought about that. No, I'm going to stay with my plan. I'll, I'll finish out what I'm doing here the rest of this week. I'll go over next week. Got there, got hired the very same day. I found out the job had just been posted the very day that I was told where the company was. That's when that job, uh, I'm sorry, that's when the job came open. That's when the person that was in that job left. The company policy was for three days that position cannot be filled until it's advertised within the corporation. If I had run over there that day, it wouldn't even have been opened up. I didn't even know what I was doing. You know, for me, I did it because, well, I'm right here in this industrial park. My plan was to go through the industrial park. So I continued going through the industrial park and, and, and waited till the next, the following week to go over there. If I had done it in my emotional state, oh, so you got to pray to God. Keep your mind on him, no matter what's going on in your life. And there are many other ways we can deal with prayer, um, deal with fear. Prayer is one of them. If you've ever heard any reports from jet airliners that go down and not everybody is killed, you, you, the people on board usually say there's no panic, there's not yelling and screaming or anything. Everybody's very somber, very sober, very quiet. Some people are writing letters, some people get out their cell phone. They're doing the things that they realize they need to do at that time. Because in nine, as one guy recently said on television, in 90 seconds, I'll be dead. And then one very courageous person really simplified the whole matter. She said, if I die, I die. She did her prep, she did her homework, and said, okay, it's time, time for me to go do it. If I die, I die. Courage can be that simple or that difficult. Anybody know who that person is? Anybody know who that person, famous person that said, if I die, I die? Esther. Esther, right? Esther. There's another example I'll give you. If you ever took flight training, when you got to emergency procedures, your instructor might have told you, well, do armchair visualizations. That means you go, you sit in your living room and you sit down in the chair, you close your eyes, now you envision yourself being the cockpit of the aircraft. All right, I have engine failure. What do I do? And I can remember these things now, and I haven't flown since 1986. Check the ignition switch. Is it on and is the indicator indicating it have power? Yes. Check your gas. Check your fuel. What other instruments are? Check your fuel selector switch. Make sure you got the right tank and you got gasoline. Once you complete all the steps there, then you go on and say, okay, I've got to go do a restart. Full carburetor heat, full mixture rich. You try it. It doesn't work. Okay, now we've got to shut down all the electrical. 
First, you shut down any flammable liquids, like gasoline, shut it off, drain it out if you can. Then you shut down all your electrical. Then you pray, and the very last thing you do, <laughs> then the very, the very last thing you do is you unlatch the doors, because you don't want the doors in a crash to jam you inside of the plane. So you unlatch the doors. And Daniel said it in, in Daniel 1.8. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meals, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So he already purposed in his heart what he was going to do. Now, we don't necessarily know specifically what events may transpire upon us, but we can still have a structural plan in our heart and emotionally so we don't feel like a panic-stricken rat that somebody's chasing around as the cat chases him. David's life seemed to have more than a fair share of emergencies, and we have some emergencies now and more strenuous ones to come at some time in the future. And because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he was commanded all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, he received the blessings of, of 15.4. But additionally, he's in the kingdom of God, the ruler over all of Israel. Wrapped up in this one summary scripture may be the, toll, the sum total expression of God's love, mercy, compassion, the expression of God's judgment and how he weighs the factors that hang on the balance of justice. Factors such as understanding our heart, our emotions, the events, the attitude, and circumstances of all the players involved. And perhaps verse 15.5 refers to Uriah because it is the only issue that is without closure. Perhaps because there will be a physical resurrection that occurs, Bathsheba will be there, Uriah will be there, and a little baby will be there. And Uriah knows nothing about the events that led up to his death. So maybe that's why that's there, Uriah is mentioned. But we can take some comfort reading the scripture in those events in David's life because he made it into the kingdom. We can learn from the pitfalls of life and navigate our life perhaps in such a way to avoid some of the similar pitfalls. It says in Psalms 103 verse 12, Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has removed our transgressions from us. He did that for David and he will do that for you.